Doesn't it feel like we're in someone else's living room, <laughs> but there's like lots of love, so we're going to be just fine? Yeah, that's fine. I, um, it's great to be with you all. I hadn't thought of this as the meeting space between Los Angeles and Scotland, um, but here we are. We found the middle point. And I have just been a huge fan of John Philip Newell and got to meet him. And then he came over to my house. (laughs) He was in my office. And we got to have this discussion about your first book. And then um, I just kept talking to my wife about how much I loved the book and what a joy it was to interview you. And then in an email uh, a couple of months ago, um, John Philip Newell said, you know, my friends call me J.P., So we went to that next level in our relationship. (laughs) So this is JP. So the other day I said, I mentioned Kristen something about, you know, I'm going to be, something about uh, soon I'm going to be with JP. She's like, who's JP? And I was like, it's John Philip Newell. But we as his friends, we call him JP. (laughs) (laughs) So JP, it's so great. As long as you don't call me John Paul. So, let, um, this book of yours, The Rebirthing of God, um, how long did this, ago did this come out? It came out in 2014. It, uh, and how long did it, did it take to write it? These themes had been with me for, for many years. Uh, and the way I tend to, to go about writing, and maybe this is how you do as well, but I, I sometimes fantasize thinking, would it not be nice to be tucked away in my highland cottage and never have to get on an airplane again. Uh, but that's fantasy, because the way books uh, are written, and I'm, I feel so honored to, to be able to write in this way, is that uh, as, as vision is, is emerging within me and feeling that some things need to be said, I'm forever having opportunity to try it out. Uh, and I learn from people's blank faces or <laughs> people's yeses or people's struggles. with, And that really informs the writing. So I had been working on it with groups for, for three or four years before I actually sat down to write it. I, uh, the rebirthing of God, I love titles. Like titling is like an art form yeah. to me. And bad titles are like, oh, please... Stop it. You're killing us. But this title, this is like fantastic. Did you, where did the rebirthing of God, where did that title come from? It came, it came out of my uh, realization that something is trying to be born uh, within us at this moment in time. And uh, I, d- I don't know if I was telling you when we were together in California, but uh, there was a conversation that happened after the publication of the book that I so wished had happened before I wrote the epilogue to the book. I was uh, launching the book in Dublin, Ireland, and there was uh, a sister, a religious sister present who had been a midwife for most of her vocation. And she was fascinated by all the birthing images in the book. And at the end of the presentation, she said, you know, the God who's trying to be born, the sacredness that's trying to rise up in us now, is, uh, is a cosmic God. That is, a sense of sacredness that breaks way beyond the boundaries that we have tried to place on the sacred. And she said, the God of so much of our religious inheritance is a pretty small God, she said. You know, we've got God well-trained to look after our nation. Well-behaved. Yeah, that's, oh, very well-behaved. <laughs> and, and, you know, Presbyterianism excels any, every other tradition when it speaks about everything should be done decently and in order. <laughs> I mean, one only has to look at the universe and the messiness of birth and of death and of new beginnings, to realize that this is not a, a, a doing everything decently and in order. But um, this woman, at the end of my talk, this midwife, said, the God who's trying to be born <clears throat> is cosmic. 
So she said, we're in for quite a stretching. <laughs> and I said to her, you know, why could I not have had this conversation with you <laughs> before writing the epilogue? I mean, she got it, because that is what we are in the midst of. We're in the, in the midst of an enormous stretching, way beyond the bounds of how we've tried to put boundaries or definitions on the sacred. And I was so excited that night by this uh, sister's comment that I phoned Edinburgh that night to speak to my wife, Ali, and I said, you know, this sister has talked about us being in for a big stretching. And this released in Ali uh, a memory from halfway through the labor of the, the birth of our first child, and that was Ali realizing there's no going back. <laughs> and, uh, and that's so true as well. There's no going back. We may pretend that we can go back to uh, the God who is sort of limitedly of our nation or of our religion or of our species. Uh, we can't go back. So we're being invited to to be part of this great stretching, these holy labor pains. Oh, that's so good. In the midst of an enormous stretching is a fairly bulky book title, but I just want to throw it out there for you for the follow-up. <laughs> In the midst of it. <laughs> Put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm good, but I'm in the midst of an enormous stretching. <laughs> so just bear with me. I'm a little on the grumpy side. <laughs> okay. So I was thinking where to start in the book. Um, there's a line I would like to read you completely out of context from the sentences before and after it. Um, and then, because it, it's based on a story you tell about somebody else, and then I would love for you to just give us this, because I literally burst out laughing when I came to this part of the book. So I was like, this is in the preface. Where is this book going from here? Um, so this is the sentence... By the way, you're going to love this. Not to hype it, but we are living in the midst of the great turd falling. <laughs> Just that. Just that. So th this comes out of a dream, a dreamlike awareness that Carl Jung, the founder of analytical psychology, had, you know, even as a boy he had prophetic intuitions. And some of them, he, di he didn't find the language or the courage to speak for nearly 50 years later. So as a 12-year-old boy walking home from school one day in Basel, Switzerland, he was walking past the cathedral and he became aware of an image that so horrified him that he tried pushing it back down into the unconscious. But it just kept insisting on coming up. And when, 50 years later, in his early 60s, he writes about this, he says that what he saw on that day above the spire of Basel Cathedral was the throne of God. And descending from the throne was a great turd that smashed into this spire and the walls of the cathedral crumbled. So, it, we're in the midst of the turd falling, um, but it's not just falling, it's hit. And uh, the walls of Christianity as we have known them are crumbling. And there are some really fine exceptions and uh, this congregation and this community, I count as one of these great exceptions that something else is trying to be born. And that's really what I'm uh, wanting to explore in the book because I see three reactions or responses to the great turd falling. And um, one is to say, uh, you know, it's not falling or we're not in trouble. And that's a path of denial that that I'm not encouraging within the Christian household. The second is to say, yeah, we're in trouble, but we just need more of the same.
but we need to do it with greater energy or, you know, we need to maybe change the window dressing a bit, but, you know, we just need more of the same. And then the third path, and that's what I give the book to, uh, exploring, and that is to ask what's trying to be born, what's trying to come forth. One of the first times I used this image with, with a group, a woman came up, another midwife, uh, came up and said, you know, I've been a midwife for 25 plus years, and one of the things I've noticed, she said, is that the turd nearly always comes before the birth. I find that so helpful. I mean, what, <laughs> what, what are we... There's need? a book title. I found that turd so helpful. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's what do, we, what, do we have, what do we have to let go of yeah. in order to, be, to uh, prepare, prepare the birthing? And uh, there was another wonderful um, moment in relation to the turd story. And I, I, I had used it in Ireland and um, with a group of presentation sisters. And at the end of my talk, uh, a sister came up and said, now, now John Philip, what exactly is a turd? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in, in part it's because in Ireland, of course, uh, that's how you pronounce T-H-I-R-D, you know, first, second, turd. <laughs> so, so there was some confusion, but you, you know what turd means. I feel like we could go all night on just this one theme. <laughs> it's really interesting to me in the book that you talk about um, the, that Jesus talked about the need to be born anew, and you talk about reclaiming this idea of born anew or born again. But then there's a phrase that repeats um, again and again and again is this phrase that you use, that which is deepest within us. Um, And then you say um, the necessity of what is deepest in us coming forth again. And we do not have to create it. We cannot create it. But we can let it spring forth and be reborn in our lives. And it's almost like there's a sub-theme throughout the whole book of um, you are a human being, you pay your bills, you're going through your life, you have your family, you have your frustration, but then there is that which is deepest in you. And we're not creating anything or bringing, we're just allowing that to rise up. Yes. I think one of, you know, one of Jesus' favorite mantras uh, is you need to be born again. You need to be born anew. And this is so central to Jesus' teaching that I believe we need to reclaim these words uh, because these words have been hijacked by uh, one end of the spe- Christian spectrum and they've been hijacked to, to mean we need to become something other than ourselves. And Jesus was a rabbi. So one of the things we need to remember is that his starting point was, was not the doctrine of original sin. That's a Christian problem. It's not a Jewish problem. <laughs> so uh, what is deepest in us is of God. You know, the faithful Jew, the morning prayer of many faithful Jews is the soul you have created in me, O God, is pure. So that's where a good rabbi starts from, from uh, that sacred essence of our being. So when Jesus is speaking about the need to be born anew, I believe he's speaking about what is deepest in us coming forth again. Uh, with the radicalness of, uh, of what we've never known before. It's, it's coming forth in a new way, always. And I'm, I'm a great believer in trying to redeem as much of our inherited language in our Christian mm-hmm. household as we can, and that's one of the phrases that, that I believe we're being called back to. <clears throat> but 
the, uh, the, the place of original sin in our inheritance is, is so enormous that it's quite a task. <clears throat> I often think that if, if we take out the doctrine of original sin from the edifice of Western theology, the whole thing collapses <clears throat> because everything has been built on that starting point. And I, I believe it's a false starting point, and uh, the, the Celtic tradition, for instance, from which I draw so heavily, uh, never accepted that as the starting point, nor did the whole of Eastern Christianity. Start, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy has never uh, entertained the, the doctrine of original sin, because what's deepest in us is of God, and we know that when we hold a newborn child in our arms. And um, I was giving a talk on some of these themes of <clears throat> the sacredness of the newborn child and that that sacredness is deep within each one of us, within every person. And at the end of the talk, uh, a woman, I think in her 80s, was coming up the, the central aisle very purposefully with a copy of Listening for the Heartbeat of God, one of my books in her hand. Oh, that feeling when an older woman comes up quickly holding a copy of your book. Yeah. You're like, I always like, this could go one of two ways. That's right. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I, and that's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking, <laughs> I think she's going, you know, the naughty boy in me and uh, thought, she's going to hit me over the head with that. <clears throat> <laughs> and uh, this was in Virginia. <laughs> um, and... Um, Maybe she's here tonight. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> so I was quite wrong. She came up to me and uh, she said, I want to show you what I wrote in this book after reading it. And she opened the front cover and inside she had written, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. <clears throat> and uh, I so often I wish that I had asked her for that copy. Because I think that's what we're in the midst of when we hear ancient truth yes. that has been covered over. <clears throat> we think, well, we, I knew this. I haven't heard it said. I haven't heard it taught. But I know it. And I think that sort of deep knowing is, is part of what is with us all uh, when, when we hold a newborn child in our arms. We know that this child has somehow come through us but this child has come from a much deeper source, a sacred source. Yeah. I love that uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's this word teshuva, T apostrophe S-H-U-V-A-H, teshuva. And it means to turn or to return. And this idea of, uh, and the idea behind teshuva is you, you're on a path and it's a good path and you're headed in a beautiful direction and then you kind of wandered off the path. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And then you have this moment of like, oh wait, I've wandered off the path. And there's both an element of sorrow, like how did I wander off the path? But then there's also a joy, like thank God that I've realized and woken up to the fact that I've wandered off the path. And then you turn and head back onto the path. And that in the middle of teshuva is shuv, which means turn. Um, but that this word in English, in the New Testament, is where we get the word repent. Right. So when Jesus says, when a Jewish rabbi comes along, he says, teshuva, for the kingdom is near. Which the starting point isn't, you wretched, depraved sinner. Best of luck finding the path. <laughs> it's your very essence has been on the path. You may have wandered off. And I think about how you, like, you go to a concert or a game and there are the people out front with those signs that always say, repent, repent, which basically means you are pathetic. Um, but what if their sign said, you were on the path, you just wandered off, come on home. More people might listen to what they're saying with their bullhorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That there is something deepest within us. And then you, you do this, I mean, we're still in the preface. We're still in the preface. <laughs> You could put out prefaces that would be better than some people's books. Yeah. This. Thank God you've never got past the preface. <laughs> <laughs> it, go, it goes downhill oh after. <laughs> I'm hoping tonight, because I'm so excited they gave us seven hours. That was kind of exciting <laughs> that we could get to uh, 
we can maybe get to the chapter one if things go well. Uh, and then you make this, you mentioned that um, in the story of Christ's resurrection, he's not found where his body was laid, that the story is not about resuscitation, it's about resurrection. <clears throat> and um, that I loved this, it is forever finding its new form, forever unfolding into what has never been before. Uh, and I thought about, like scientists are now saying, the, the best sort of estimate is that the universe is 13.8 billion years old and it's been expanding from a singular point of infinite density because that doesn't raise any questions. Um, <laughs> but, but like the universe has been, only knows this one direction of expansion. And um, can you say more about the difference between resuscitation and resurrection? Because that felt like it was really, really big for us to understand. Yeah, and it, it relates to that um, second path that I was referring to earlier in which there's this awareness that, that Christianity as we have known it is in trouble and, and uh, part of what's being said on that second path is well we just need to resuscitate you know we, 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 uh, we, we need more of the same we just need to sort of yeah. up the game a bit. get a better website yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> and um, the difference between resuscitation and resurrection for, for me is that in the Easter story in our, in our Christian household, something is being spoken of uh, that, that was entirely unexpected, uh, that wasn't just uh, a resuscitation. It's Carl Jung that says, you know, the the risen Christ is not found where his body was laid, so don't, don't go there. Um, and uh, this is the way of the universe, and that, this, is, this is what's exciting for me about the way in which the new, that which we can't possibly know, is forever waiting to unfold. This, this is what the universe is doing. It just keeps throwing up new form. It's like, it's like a dream that, that's forever shape-shifting, it moves into new, new form. And I think we're being invited to, to open up to, to what we don't know yet. And uh, that, for me, is, is at the heart of what it is to be part of a resurrection faith, that, that we're being invited to, to dream of what we've never known before, allow ourselves to uh, imagine ways of seeing, ways of ritual, ways of prayer, ways of engaging way beyond our boundaries that we, that we haven't known anything of yet. And that is so much part of the, the very nature of the universe that we need to ask ourselves some, some questions about why on earth did we think that, that uh, we have any right to perpetuity? Why should we continue if we're not unfolding? A number of years ago, I was um, preaching a sermon in St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, the little national cathedral in Scotland. And I was delivering the pulpit from, uh, the sermon from the pulpit, which hugs one of the four massive pillars that have been there for a thousand years. And I began the sermon by saying, there will come a time when this cathedral is no more. And there will come a time when our scriptures are no more. And there will come a time when Christianity is no more. This was too much for one of my listeners. And she stood up and, and said, heresy. And this, of course, is when the rest of the congregation woke up. <laughs> I, could, I could see people looking at each other as if, did he say something? <laughs> and um, I mean, we really need one of those every, every Sunday, right? <laughs> um, so uh, it was in one of these old Scottish boxed pews. So in order to get out, she had to you know, pushed the door, but she slammed it open. 
Uh, and she had power dress that day, good hard heels stomping down the central aisle. The Did you west. say power dress? Power dress. <laughs> Is that a Scottish term? It must be. <laughs> it must be. She had power dressed. <laughs> <laughs> and she got to the main door, um, and before slamming the main door, she shifted now uh, from heresy to heretic. That's always and, where it goes, JP. And, uh, <laughs> and slammed the door and was off. <clears throat> so, uh, the, did you continue the sermon? Yeah, and I felt you know people are awake now. Did you? <laughs> did you just start from the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should have. I didn't. <laughs> I actually I was going to ask you about that because that I loved that story. Um, but there's this interesting thing you do with John the Beloved leaning against Jesus at the Last Supper and how in Celtic tradition that by doing this he heard the heartbeat of God. And I love that reading of it. I also love that the Celtic tradition, um, you know, a lot of Western tradition would be like John was leaning up against Jesus. He was this disciple. He would, there's, I'm an analysis, but the Celtic tradition like plays with it. Yeah. There's like a poetry to it. There's like a mysticism to it. Yeah. By leaning up against Jesus, he's hearing the heartbeat of God. And then you go on, uh, he became a symbol of the practice of listening. Listening deep within ourselves, within one another, and within the body of the earth for the beat of the sacred presence. Come on. <laughs> Come on, that is so good. <laughs> Let's just start with the listening. Yeah. You know, th this image is so dear to my heart that I don't think I ever give a talk without, first of all, referring to that image. I feel it's such an essential posture to listen within ourselves, within one another, within the earth, for the beat of the sacred presence. And this posture holds the key to, to the way of transformation, I believe. It uh, leads us to, to be attentive within ourselves to something you know, so, so opposite to original sin, because we're listening for the beat of our very essence, the sacred essence within us. But it also, of course, is really inviting us to listen in a new way to one another and, and, uh, and to those in other religious traditions, uh, those in other uh, racial groups, those in other nations, those who s seem so different from us. And it, it invites us into a sense of relationship with every life form, every, everything that has being. And one, one of the uh, exciting bits of research that I've been doing lately is, um, is on John Muir, the American prophet of ecological awareness and activism. And you know, John Muir uses that image. He says, within the, the granite of our mountains is the heartbeat of God. It, it, that pulsing is to be found in everything in the universe. He says the, the stars are streaming through space, being pulsed onward by the heartbeat of God. <laughs> de Chardin talks about, in his personal writings, a rock. And for him, his awareness of Christ began with matter itself mm. and the Christ in matter. Yeah. Um, okay, so you tell, along those lines, you tell this story about being in New York City. By the way, your stories happen in the coolest places. You know what I mean? There's not one story here that, like, I was in Ohio. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Awesome. But your stories are like India, Scotland. And then you tell the story with your accent. It's even better than the book. It's just... So, but we have... There's New York City. You tell about this liturgy with a silent procession of creatures... And animals were brought in to the sanctuary, and then um, some. And then a camel came in. 
That's where I was like, wait, this is a rather large building to have a camel. Um, and then a boa constrictor, and then a pig, and a goat, and then the whole spectrum of God's creatures. And you describe all of these animals coming down the central aisle of the church. Um, and you talk about being moved by, uh, you say, what impressed me most, I would have been, I would have, the camel alone for me. But you say, what impressed me most that morning was the church was not telling people what to believe. They already knew what they believed. That was why they were there. The church's role was to serve that deep knowing and to help translate it into how we live together with the earth. Mm. And I was thinking about how my daughter, I have a seven-year-old daughter named Violet with long, blonde, curly hair. She owns me. (laughs) But the first thing she does each morning is go in and get the dog and hug the dog. Mm. Like, I'm like three in the ranking of who gets hugged. (laughs) Um, Like an intuitive, we begin the day by acknowledging all the living creatures in in our home, let alone in nature. Mm. Their job wasn't to tell them. And then you say this, um, too often in the past, our approach to truth has been to assume that we have it and others do not. Consequently, we have thought that our role is to tell people what to believe. We are being invited instead into a new humility to serve the holy wisdom that is already stirring in the hearts of people everywhere, the growing awareness of earth's interrelatedness and sacredness, which I think for this is... I think just incredibly helpful for so many people. Mm. Can you say more about this sense of what people already know? Mm. It relates to the I knew it, I knew it, I knew it story. And I I find this enormously liberating that our role is not to deposit something that isn't already there. Right, right. That our role as teachers, as as bearers of, of... um, as liberators of wisdom, is to speak in ways, to relate in ways uh, that, that actually release these deep knowings in, in one another, uh, rather than the, my God, well, I mean, what a weight has been on our right, shoulders right. of thinking that we, we have to uh, place something in one another or in the other that isn't already there. Uh, Meister Eckhart, the 14th century Christian mystic, says, God is to be found in the human soul, not by addition, but by subtraction. Not by addition, but by subtraction. I don't need to add anything to you. Nothing needs to be added to me, to each one of you. Uh, The heart of your being is pure sacred gift. So we do need to do the work, however, of subtraction. We need to do the work of subtracting the way in which the ego keeps claiming to be center. And this holy work of subtraction is what we owe one another in our disciplines of prayer, in the way we have rituals together, in the way teaching is offered. Let's help one one another do this uh, healthy work of subtracting the way in which the ego tries to be the center. And this isn't about demeaning the self, it's not about hating the self. It's about remembering at a deep level that the ego, this amazing faculty of consciousness and willpower that we have, is given to serve the center. And when my work of subtraction is is being done, then I can serve our center, because that's where the center is, in each one of us, not just in me. And this work of subtracting is, <clears throat> is important at the individual level. 
I believe each one of us is being called to do this work. <clears throat> but we're also being called to do it at the collective level. And think of the enormous ego of this nation. Of what? My, this of, nation? <laughs> <laughs> of, of my nation <laughs> as well. You know, the British Empire. We know nothing of empires. No. <clears throat> You know, and think of, think of the enormous <laughs> ego of the human species that we've assumed that it all is there for us, rather than seeing that we are there to, to be together, serving the center at the heart of one another, at the heart of all things. Uh, so, and you know, th this is again heart of Jesus's teaching. It's one of his great mantras. Yeah, be born anew, but also die. <coughs> die to, to the way in which the ego is claimed center ground in order to live. And this is good news. It's about living from our true depths, not about somehow hating the self. It's about doing the work of allowing the, the, the soul strength that is within us, the wisdom that is within us, the creativity within us, the yearnings for oneness that are within us, because we're made of the one. So at the heart of our being is the desire for oneness. So, so this work is about being set free from the fears that fragment us and separate us. You know, it's interesting that you give it that language because uh, it strikes me how often I'll be doing an event and somebody will ask a question and I'll, I'll like smell the fear in the question <laughs> or the guilt or the shame or the anxiety and if I just, hold on, hold on, it sounds like there's a question underneath your question and hold on, let's take away the fear and let's take away the anxiety. I feel so bad that I, let's take away the shame. Mm -hmm. um, Oftentimes, by the time you pull those things away from the question and then say to the person, so you actually do know what the next step yeah. is or the truth here or the, how often it's a, an issue of subtraction, that the person has a question, but once the, sub, the proper things are subtracted, they actually already know mm. Mm. and are in some sort of tribe, family system, something that has loaded them down with all these expectations or worries Mm. But they actually already possess it yeah. and just need a bunch of things taken away. Okay, you have, a, you have a statement here. By the way, for those keeping track at home, we've gotten to page eight. <laughs> <laughs> page an hour, I think, would be a good pace. Um, you talk about the incarnation um, and the story of the incarnate Christ points to the oneness of heaven and earth, the divine and the human, spirit and matter. It points not to an exclusive truth, but to the most inclusive of truths. Oh, I just want to give the universe a high five after a line like that. <laughs> um, but, but then it, it does not limit the sacredness to one man at one moment in time. It reveals the essential sacredness of every person and everything that has been created. I thought about uh, Moses does not take his sandals off because suddenly the ground is holy. Moses takes his sandals off because he realizes the ground has been holy the whole time mm. and he's just now becoming aware of it. Mm. But I find really interesting is, is when you, you place the incarnation of Christ uh, as pointing to Oneness, heaven, earth, divine, human, spirit, matter. Can you say more about that? Yeah, we, we have this most radical doctrine at the heart of our Christian household, incarnation, which speaks of the oneness of heaven and earth, oneness of spirit and matter, oneness of the divine and the human. And what we've done with this radical doctrine is we've said it applies to one. Instead of seeing that what that one that we so cherish in our Christian household 
is showing us. I mean, in the Celtic world, Jesus is spoken of as our revelation, which comes from the Latin root revelare, which means lift the veil. He lifts the veil to show us the oneness of spirit and matter, the oneness of heaven and earth, the oneness of the divine and the human at the very heart of my being, at the very heart of all being. And um, there's a phrase that's used about Jesus every, every week in the different parts of the Christian household. And maybe in parts of the world it's being used every day when Jesus is referred to as the only begotten Son of God. And the way that that phrase has often been used and is often heard is Jesus is of God in a way that is entirely foreign yeah. to how we and are. And you aren't. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And how the whole universe is of God. Yeah. And again, it's, um, it's Meister Eckhart, the 14th century teacher, who says, only begotten means begotten of the only one. That would have been nice to know. <laughs> <laughs> that would have helped. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that sort of exclusivizing of Jesus, uh, uh, saying he's an exception to the universe rather than revelation of the universe, right. uh, is something that uh, became very sort of entrenched in a lot of our Christianity from, from the fourth century onwards. You know, when, when Christianity gets into bed with empire, empire doesn't want to know that everything is essentially sacred because then we can't do whatever we want to the, to the matter of the earth. An empire, this structure of hierarchy and power, certainly doesn't want to know that the essence of your being and of every person's being in the empire is sacred. Because then we'll have to start reverencing one another. We'll have to start listening for truth to come up from within rather than dispensing it. And uh, this is a phrase that finds its way into the Nicene Creed, which is used every week in so many churches. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed that we continue to say the Nicene Creed. I mean, in what other area of life would we tolerate being told what to believe by a fourth century council of men <laughs> who had been appointed by empire? Uh, so my feeling about the Nicene Creed is, yeah, it's part of our family history but uh, so it has a place in the library, but let's make sure it's at one of the farthest corners of the library <laughs> instead of placed beside the front door as required reading for everyone to come in. Uh, this, is, this is a piece of theology from a moment in time when, when we very dangerously came into a type of subservience to empire. And that uh, empire worship has continued to be part of a lot of Western Christianity. Because if people fundamentally believe they're bad and depraved and shame and humiliation is hovering right there, it's much easier to control them, coerce yeah. them, convince them that you're right and they need to listen to you. Yeah. And that, that's where the, there's this collusion, I think, between the doctrine of original sin and power because it's very convenient uh, for those in power to define the essence of the people as ignorant rather than as bearers of an unspeakable dignity. Man, oh man. Man, oh man. That's so fantastically dangerous. I love it. <laughs> uh, Heretic. <laughs> I don't know what it's like to have critics, but <laughs> I can only imagine for you. 
Oh, I am so struck with if you, if you begin with that which is deepest within us, if you begin with the sacred nature of all things, a whole bunch of problems and questions go away and a whole bunch of new possibilities arise. Mm. And instead of life as a trial to be endured, it becomes like a, a sort of adventure that you get to go on. Mm. Uh, instead of, can you believe I have to go through this too? Can you believe I get to be here and do this? Mm. It's interesting how these, you use the word subterranean at one point. And I love that. If these shifts take place within a person at a subterranean level, then all these other things begin to happen. You, you um, by chapter, by, by page 20, um, <laughs> you tell this story. You, you, you talk about the courage to see, the courage to feel, the courage to act. And um, <clears throat> you tell this story about your father and these cassettes. And for some of you, a cassette is like about this big. <coughs> and you, you put it in a car that no one owns anymore. Um, but this story about your father recording these cassettes and what happened on one of the cassettes, um, it was just amazing. Mm. Can you tell them that? Mm. I'm so delighted to tell the story about my father. Uh, I, two days ago was the fifth anniversary of his, of his death. Mm. So he's been very, especially close to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I was uh, a young man, still, still at home, late adolescence, <clears throat> my father was doing a lot of international refugee work. And uh, he, he often had to be away for long periods of time. And his practice in, in those days of not such easy international communication he would, every day, he would speak into this cassette tape recorder, and once a week he would send it home. So we would receive uh, a cassette, and we would get to hear who he had been meeting, what he had been doing. So on this occasion, he had been into a camp, refugee camp for Cambodians in the wake of the killing fields, and he had been meeting parents who had lost their children, children who had lost their parents. And at the end of the day, he came out to the car in which he was being transported back to his accommodation for the night, and he began to speak into the tape recorder. And as he began to speak about what he had been in the midst of and the people and the pain that he had been hearing, he began to weep. And the really extraordinary thing about that moment is that he chose not to turn off the tape. So what I heard was my father weeping for a couple of minutes. And I often think if he had turned off the tape or if he had erased it, if he had tried to shut down to that flow of passion, and sorrow, uh, I don't believe he would have been able to, to the same extent, do the work that, that he was doing. So for me, it's this combination that we're being invited into to, as you were saying, wake up to the amazing glory of, the, of, of every moment, of this moment. I mean, just look at one another here. Look at the light shining in our eyes. This is amazing. (laughs) So let's be alive to the inexpressible glory of every moment. And at the same time, let's pay attention to the unspeakable sufferings that are happening at the moment within us, within our own nation, within our families, within the creatures. Let's allow ourselves that sort of deep strength to weep. 
And I think one of the reasons why we shut down to tears is because at some level we know where they're taking us. Because if we really allow ourselves to feel the brokenness of a people, the brokenness of another, then that's moving us in the direction of action and cost of action and stretching. Um, Hildegard of Bingen, the 12th century teacher, says we need to learn to fly with two wings, she says. Uh, One is the wing of awareness of life's glory, and the other is the wing of awareness of life's pain and suffering. And she says, if we try to fly with only one wing, we're like an eagle trying to fly with only one wing. We won't ascend uh, to the true heights that we're being invited into. So that moment of hearing my father's tears uh, has been a moment that has always been within me and that part of what I pray for the strength to be and to do and pray for others and for our communities is to learn how to weep, not in a way that paralyzes us, but in a way that moves us more in the direction of action. Yes, I've noticed this in your, in your work, in your looking within yourself, listening for that which is deepest within you, in the contemplative, in the daily practice and meditation. Your work has this um, slow down, listen, pay attention, move your ear next to the heartbeat of the divine, but when I follow it, it always takes me somewhere in your work, which is how it works in life, to a, a welling up of compassion and energy. Um, I think for many people, like when they hear, like, well, you know, we're going to be sitting on cushions and we're going to be, you know, reflecting with the mystics, they're like, yeah, but the world's on fire. Um, it feels, I think, for some people in the modern world, like, oh, you mean you're checking out. But as you voice it, oh, no, 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 you're, you're checking in at a whole new level. Mm. That when you, and I think about how your work has affected my life in listening for that which is deepest, in the, the art of subtraction, it actually takes me into this place of, oh, there's some things we ought to do. But it's coming from a completely different place. Mm. There's a great energy there. Yes. My teacher, uh, George MacLeod of Scotland, used to say that prayer and meditation is not about retreating from the world of affairs. It's going more deeply into the world of affairs. Because by moving in, I, I, I believe we're being invited to pay attention to the glory, but also to the pain. Uh, but also, uh, what, is, what is the strength that we have for engaging? And I love the distinction that, that um, Mahatma Gandhi makes between soul force and ego force. And he sees that ego force is really pretty puny, and it's not up to the job. And he learned in a very significant way early in his life that the enormous challenge of transforming his nation or being part of the liberation of his nation from British Empire uh, was such an enormous challenge that there was no way that uh, he could possibly achieve that through just tapping into ego force, ego strength. So this subtraction work that we're all being called into is about accessing some mighty, mighty energy, soul force. And um, you were um, touching on, on one of the aspects of that earlier, and that is playful, playfully finding our way how to make use of this enormous energy for change that is within us. And that's not, that's not to sort of inflate any one of us individually. It's to say, 
that that's where our strength is. So let's be serious about the work through meditation and through spiritual practices of the work of subtraction, because then we can actually um, bring, bring energy to a great movement, a great vision, a passion for justice. That's not just about the puniness of our little egos. That's... Okay, and then um, we only have three hours left, so I've got to get moving here. <laughs> um, there is a, a word that everybody's heard a thousand times that you... I literally was like, how did I not... How I, had I not stumbled upon this? You talk about the Greek word for God, theos, where we get the word theology, as in, I have theological concerns, and um, said in a radio voice. <laughs> and you say that um, theos derives from the Greek word theo, which means run or flow. We're going to have to rename everything. Um, that's not in the book. Um, God is the light that flows through all things. It is like a subterranean river running deep in the folds of the universe. Um, and so you talk about how Kenneth White says what we are called to do is not just look at the flow, not merely analyze it or to make systems of it, I would add, but to know that we are part of it and dive more deeply into it. And I just started thinking every time I've heard the word theology or theological, <clears throat> if it would have been flowology or flow, flowological. <laughs> you know, and so instead of like theological concerns, it would be flow issues, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It would like change the whole, it's so much more interesting then. <clears throat> this takes us back to the turd right away. <laughs> but, uh, Kenneth White, um, I love the way Kenneth White plays with language. Scottish poet, modern poet. Um, he, so he, he builds on Erigena saying, God is the flow deep within the heart of this moment, deep within <clears throat> each one of us, everything that has being. And if you somehow extracted that flow from the universe, everything would cease. So it's not just a dimension, it's not just an added piece here and there. It is the very essence, the flow. And Kenneth White builds on it, and he says, God is not only the flow, God is the glow flow. Right? <laughs> and I love to play with it even further and say that what we're being invited to do is to let go to the glow flow. <laughs> That's like two Scottish poets, everything rhymes in every direction. You know, it's interesting... When you put it, because you think of how many, how many of my friends who are atheists, who when they talk about the God they don't believe in, well, I don't believe in that God either. And some people who are like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a really staunch atheist. And then they tell you about the image of God they were given, you know, growing up. You think the only healthy response to that image yeah. would, would be atheism. Mm. Um, and that so many of the images people have of God are of a static generally with a beard on a cloud somewhere else. This world goes on, and then you end up having to argue whether or not some being somewhere else exists or not. Well, this world seems to go on, but you move it to a dynamic image of the flow that runs through all things that binds us together that is in this moment. Sudden, suddenly, which is very like a very Trinitarian mm. dance, um, suddenly you have a very vibrant, much more compelling image Mm. I think lots of people, do you have a sense of flow? Yeah. Yeah. Flowology. Glow flowology. That's, a, that's not going to work as a book title. I'm sorry right there. I was going to tell you that. Um, I think one of the other aspects of that flow is that, like a river in flow, um, any attempt to sort of take a picture of the river and say, you know, this is the river, it's not because the river is flowing. And this mystery at the heart of our being, the heart of all being, that, we, that, that we, we use the word God in relation to that flow. And um, the biggest problem with the word God 
I think, is that we use it as if we know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, and it's like a sort of photograph of the flow. Uh, and we see, you know, we take the photograph, we, we take the statement about the flow and, and we, you know, we absolutize it. And the flow um, is, is way beyond anything that we can define or, or control. I love what Martin Buber, the Jewish theologian who was teaching in Germany during the Nazi rise to power, was silenced and then had to find sanctuary in Jerusalem. He was asked by a German pastor in, in Germany um, if he believed in God. And Buber said, if to believe in God means to be able to speak about God. No, I don't believe in God. But if to believe in God means to be able to speak to God, yes, I believe in God. So this giving ourselves to the flow, addressing the flow, knowing the flow within us, is so different from having a set of propositions about the flow, which try to, tries to nail it down somehow, tries to define what we can't, can't define. And I think that's part of what we're being invited into at, at this moment in time, is to let go of so many of the propositions about God that have um, dominated a lot of our Western Christian inheritance. And we often define, you know, we often define ourselves as Christians in terms of what we believe, a set of propositions about God, rather than in terms of this faithful letting go to the flow. Oh my goodness, so good. Well, we promised we would wrap this up around, you know, we're a little bit over, but let's be honest, yeah. we got the microphones. <laughs> How much, oh wait, can we do one more? Wait, we're kind of in charge. We'll do one more. <clears throat> you, at the very end, you talk about the cross and you talk about, I just picture people reading this book and just, um, or in Scotland, uh, um, <laughs> calm, a bit more poetic. And you talk about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Oh, no one reads this book in Scotland. So. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> uh, what? That hurts. Uh, okay, you talk about, for so many people, um, the cross that to this day people wear, we see all, I mean, it's all around modern culture, for so many people, the story of the cross is a payment needed to be made, and so Jesus did it to make sure so that God wouldn't be as angry. And you say one of the problems with this doctrine is that it runs counter to our deepest experiences of love. Who are the people who have most loved us in our lives admit, uh, amid our failures and betrayals? Could we imagine them ever requiring payment to forgive us? True love is free. So, then you say... And uh, do I say love wins? <laughs> but, wait, you do. I missed it here. <laughs> that was good. That was well played. And then uh, you have this paragraph, which I think the cross points to the love that so endured in Jesus for the poorest and most powerless of his people that he found the strength to go to Jerusalem to confront the holders of false power in his nation. It points to the love that so lived in Gandhi and Oscar Romero, in Rosa Parks, and in countless others who, knowing, knowing the likely cost of their passion for justice, the threat of imprisonment or death, nevertheless continued on in their chosen pathway. 
It's so beautiful. It's such a, it's such a beautiful, powerful uh, reading of the cross. And I think we need that. That is so powerful. And I sense part of the rebirthing is reading, reading the cross in a new light. And not as somebody somewhere was really angry and then Jesus came along and was like, oh, I'm not so angry. As substitutionary atonement in 11 seconds or less. And <laughs> this beautiful reading of a love that wells up within a person to stand with others who are being oppressed, who are suffering, and is willing to pay whatever that price is. Mm. Which I sense comes again and again in this, is you listen to that which is deepest within yourself, you begin to feel, you begin to see, it moves you to act, and that act will always have a cost. Um, And that's how it works. It's really beautiful. Mm. Thank you so much for the rebirthing of God by... John Philip, or as his friends like to say, J.P. Newell, available in fine bookstores everywhere, and you may even get past page 42. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. So great. Really, really inspiring. We good? Here's here's all the notes we got like this far down. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.